Morning. So we're in the middle of our silver screen series, and we're looking at three movies to see how the gospel intersects with the stories of our culture. And the reason we can do this, even with secular movies, is because, as Bishop Barron tells us, um, the once integrated Christian story that made sense of Western culture was kind of blown up by the Enlightenment. And, but the pieces went flying all over the cultural landscape. So as we look at our culture, you can see maybe a bit of eschatology there, a bit of Christology there. It might be there in twisted and charred form, but it's there. So last week, we heard Paul preach on The Greatest Showman, the musical about P.T. Barnum. And next week, we're going to hear Andy preach on First Man, the movie about astronaut Neil Armstrong. And seeing as how I didn't come in costume this time, you'll have to come in a spacesuit next time. <laughs> So this week, we're focusing on the capstone to Marvel's 22-movie story arc. A big job. And the Evening Standard uh, review of Endgame praises the mastery of this narrative. It says, to finish Marvel's first decade and clear the ground for the second, all they had to do was tie up all these strands of plot and countless emotional conflicts left dangling by the 20-strong series launched by Iron Man back in 2008. So if you haven't seen the previous movies, um, Endgame may not have the same impact um, because you kind of have to be invested in the characters and the story arcs. Am I, only, am I the only nerd that's seen all 22? Anyone else? <laughs> oh, there's one nerd, a couple, okay. It's like reading the book of Revelation without being aware of the rest of the Bible. So it's no small feat to tell a story with so many characters and plot strands, but this is kind of what makes the movie unique in cinematic history, but also very countercultural. You see, the postmodern culture we live in says that you have your story, I have mine, that culture has its story, and we have ours, but there's no such thing as a transcendent meta-narrative that ties us all together and that's true for all of us. These 22 movies are a meta-narrative. But even more astounding is that these movies echo the Christian meta-narrative so strongly that this secular review goes on to say that Endgame is the godless version of the greatest story ever told. And theologian John Stackhouse agrees. In his review of the movie, he said, what is unimaginably better is that it's the truest story, actual good news, of what is actually the case. And when one encounters that story, one can respond in only one way, to marvel. So how does this story echo the greatest story? Well, it goes well beyond this motif of the self-sacrificing hero who gives up his life to save the world. That's in there. But that's already been explored by all the previous Marvel movies. So for instance, uh, in Guardians of the Galaxy, you see Groot and Yondu give up their lives, not just to save the galaxy, but to also to save their, their newfound family. Or in Doctor Strange, we see him willingly trap himself in an infinite time loop to die and suffer an infinite number of times to keep the world safe. But what Endgame and its predecessor, Infinity War, do together, even better than the previous Marvel movies, is to explore this connection between death sacrificial death and life. 
Let me repeat that because that's going to be the theme of our morning. They help us explore death, sacrificial death, and life. And further, we're going to see this, how this is relevant to our own game, end game, which was never intended to be death, but rather to become fully living human beings through sacrificial death. So keep that in the back of your mind as I meander about, because that's the main point. So as we saw in Infinity War, the bad guy is Thanos. He's the big purple dude in the back there. Does anybody know what his name means? Death, that's right. Um, it's, he's literally death in Greek. Um, and what's interesting is he represents metaphorically what is our supposed end game, right? What is inevitable for everyone in this room. We're all going to die. It's something we all have in common, and yet there's nothing ordinary about death for the person facing it. Now, it doesn't matter if you're young, like Peter Parker, or if you have mysticism and spirituality, like Dr. Strange, or if you have all the virtue of Steve Rogers. Death is still inevitable. There's nothing you can do about it. And it doesn't even matter if you have all the science tech and technology of Tony Stark. We are still helpless in the face of death. And death exposes the false promises of our culture. You see, the false promise that we can be anything we want to be, and this illusion of autonomy and freedom, seems like a joke when we consider the fact that, yes, I can decide whether to put ketchup on my fries, but no one here chose to be born, and no one here can get out of death. So much for freedom. And so the best that the modern world can offer us is to hide death, right? We put our old people in seniors' homes now, and we don't see death very much because we leave that up to professionals. The French historian Philip Ariz noted that Western attitudes towards death have changed. We used to be very comfortable with death, and now we're kind of in denial. The best our technology can give us is something the healthcare professionals call terminal management, right? in the form of euthanasia and abortion. Now, Thanos was actually the protagonist of the previous movie, Infinity War. And he sets himself, as death does, as a god. He introduces himself this way. Dread it, run from it, destiny arrives all the same. And now it's here, or should I say, I am. Sorry, that's a bad, bad impression. <laughs> but, and he parallels our passage that we read from Genesis 1. Because if you'll notice, in the previous movie, he works for six stones, and then he rests in his garden after he's completed his work. You see, death becomes our God when it determines the patterns for our life. And whether we attend the church of running or the gym, or we spend our time accumulating security in the form of wealth, as Freud noted, this all boils down to a latent fear of death. And as we'll see, the only real solution to this problem is found in the pattern of the cross-shaped life. If you'll notice the design of this poster, Tony Stark is being foreshadowed what he will do in Endgame. He's in a pose of a cross, shielding the others from impending death. But at the end of Infinity War, what we find is Thanos has actually succeeded. 
And half the people on this poster, exactly half, are dead at the end of that movie. So we find our heroes at, in Act One of Endgame, if we can go to the next slide, dealing with the fallout of death. Right away at the start of the movie, they kill Thanos, shockingly. But that doesn't solve anything. And so we find them dealing with death in the only way humans know how. And here we see the five stages of grief as represented by our heroes. Natasha, Black Widow, is in denial. She's in the compound after five years, still trying to find a solution. Surprisingly, it's not Hulk who's angry. It's Clint or Hawkeye. And he's taking his rage out on any bad guy he can get his hands on. Banner represents the bargaining stage of grief. And he's come to this weird bargaining stage with the Hulk, Professor Hulk. And he even bargains for the Time Stone later in the movie. And in one of the most accurate depictions of depression I've seen in a movie, Thor spirals down comically into a shadow of his former self. Who's Captain America? Steve Rogers. Well, he's playing the counselor. We even see him counseling people in the beginning of the movie. And Tony Stark, after five years, represents acceptance. We find him having moved on with a family resting in his own garden at the end of five years. Um, where am I here? Now, later on in the movie, when Natasha dies, we'll see they all change places. But the important thing to note is that Tony stays at acceptance because that's the important precondition for doing what he does at the end of the movie. So now we get to act two. And normally, act two in these superhero movies is when, if you have a small bladder like me, you go to the bathroom because it's the slower bit, you know? And because we're all waiting for the action-packed act three. But these movies are kind of different because they kind of have this symmetrical structure that tells you to pay attention to the center of the movie. So you'll notice, um, for example, in Infinity War, the movie starts with a distress call as the Asgardians are dying, and it ends with a distress call as Nick Fury is dying. And then you see Thanos threaten Thor's life by going for his head, and then Thor threatens Thanos' life by going for his head and then Corvus Glaive stabs Vision, and then Vision stabs Corvus Glaive. What this is, is this is something that Mike Bennett was teaching us uh, a few weeks ago. It's a chiastic structure. It's a sandwich within a sandwich, and the literary structure is telling you that the very middle of the movie is where the good stuff is. And so in that previous movie, what was right in the middle of that chiastic structure was Thanos sacrificing his only beloved child to complete his work of creation. Now here is the chiastic structure of Endgame. If we could move to the next slide. And so you'll see, I don't know if you can read that, but basically the movie starts off with Hawkeye teaching his daughter how to use a bow and arrow. He's handing down his legacy, and then he loses his family. And the movie ends with Captain America giving his shield away. He's handing down his legacy after he's gained a family. And then we see Tony Stark recording a holographic message, and then the heroes gather for him. And then the movie ends after, at his funeral with the heroes gathering for him, and they play a holographic message. And then Thanos is killed at the beginning, and Thanos is killed at the end. Yes, we actually see the bad guy killed twice in this movie, and it's awesome. 
But what this structure is telling us to do is to pay special attention to the time heist. That's where our heroes have to go back in time to get these time stones to undo what Thanos has done. So we're supposed to pay attention to the time heist. And in the time heist, we also see a sacrifice of someone for the soul stone. But there's a qualitative difference you need to pay attention here. In the previous movie, the sacrifice was a victim. Here, what we see is the contrast of the true Christ sacrifice. Natasha is giving up her life voluntarily. So Jesus is not a victim. You know, sometimes I wish when we do communion, we would read the gospel passage for communion where, where it reminds us by saying, this is my body given for you. Christ is not a victim. He's a voluntary, um, he voluntarily gives up his life in love. But what's really interesting about the time heist is it helps us explore the multifaceted concept of sacrifice beyond biological death. So, for example, when they travel back in time, Thor meets his mom on the day that she's going to die, but he can't tell her. It's really heartbreaking. He knows she's going to die. And she sees how far off track Thor has, has taken, his life has taken him. And she does what any good mom should do. You know, when our kids go off the rails, or we have a friend who's in addiction, the, la the worst thing you can do is tell them that they're fine. She doesn't do that. She tells Thor, you need to become the man you were supposed to be, the man you were meant to be. Not who people expect you to be, but become the man you were meant to be. But here's the thing. In order for children to grow up and become who they're supposed to be, something of motherhood needs to die. I don't know if you've heard of the Oedipal mother complex, where mothers just can't stop mothering and they undermine the development of their children. Those of us here from Asian cultures might know a little bit about that. And also, some part of mothering needs to die if children are to grow up and leave and cleave to their spouse. Interestingly, this day, Thor's mom dies so that his love interest can live. And then we see that Tony Stark meets his dad. And here we explore the sacrifice children take, have to take when we, they have absentee fathers. Tony Stark's father prioritized his career and he had a very bad relationship with his dad. And he's trying to be a better dad to his daughter, Morgan. But the irony is, in order for Tony Stark to do the heroic act and participate in this time heist, it will lead to him being an absentee daughter, uh, absentee father, and his Morgan, his daughter, will suffer the cost. And then we come to uh, Steve Rogers, Captain America, and he encounters the love of his life, Peggy Carter, and we are reminded of the sacrifice he made for the good of the world. This is the sacrifice of celibacy or singleness. But he also encounters his former self. And we see how, just how far his story has taken him. His former self is this naive soldier who just obeys. And he's even obeying the people that Ant-Man notices are obviously bad guys. And his, his older, wiser self is able to get out of situations without punching his way out. He gets out of this elevator that's packed with bad guys without fighting his way out. And he overcomes his younger, stronger self by outsmarting him. What this symbolizes is that our immature selves need to die in order for our mature self to emerge. 
Later on in the movie, this plays out with Nebula. She actually has to kill her younger evil self in order for her good self to live. This is what baptism represents sacramentally. Our sinful life needs to die in order for our new Christ follower life to emerge. The two cannot exist simultaneously. Now, I could talk about Endgame all day, and believe me, I want to, but I do want to spend the rest of our time focusing on our passage. But I want to look at our passage and see how it is connected to the story of Christ. In other words, how the story of creation is linked to the story of salvation. And I want to do it through the disciples of John. These include um, our church fathers, including Ignatius, who was uh, actually a disciple of the guy who wrote the Gospel of John and also Revelation, and Irenaeus, who learned from Polycarp, who was a direct disciple of John. And I'm going to be drawing on the work of John Bear, who teaches patristics, which is about the church fathers at uh, Regent Summer School, and he also is the pro full-time professor of patristics at St. Vladimir's Seminary. And since I'm only going to have time to scratch the surface, um, I'm going to recommend this book if you want to learn a bit more about what these church fathers said. Um, this little book is a meditative book called Becoming Human, and it's by John Baer, and it's available at the Regent Bookstore, and it's also available at Amazon. So these guys, the reason I want to use them is because they have a very unique perspective that we as evangelical Christians may not be that aware of. Um, what was their unique perspective? Well, you may have noticed that the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are quite different from the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels. And when you read the Synoptic Gospels, they're very different in tone. It's like the disciples have no idea who Jesus is and what he's here to do. They're kind of like keystone cops, right? They're just bumbling around. And the only people that seem to recognize who Jesus is are the demon-possessed. Son of God, Messiah! That's a bad impression of a demon-possessed. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not good at it, but anyway. Um, and the one time a disciple seems to get it right, that's Peter when, when Jesus says, who do they say that I am? Just a few minutes later, what's happening? What's Jesus calling him? He's saying, get behind me, Satan. Can you imagine Jesus calling you Satan? But why? Why does Jesus do that? Because Peter's trying to stop Jesus from going to the cross. And for Jesus, anyone getting between him and the cross is acting like Satan. Now, in God, John's gospel, it's quite different. Um, it's as if everybody's eyes are opened. We see John the Baptist immediately say, look, the Lamb of God. He knows Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. And then we see Philip run and tell Nathaniel, I found the one whom Moses and all the prophets wrote about. He knows the whole Old Testament is about Jesus. And this is because John is telling the same story, but from a different perspective. He's retelling the events after the disciples' eyes were opened. And that's why there's no transfiguration account in the Gospel of John, because the whole book is like a transfigured retelling. So when were these disciples' eyes opened? Despite watching Jesus heal people, feed people, calm storms, and raise the dead, they still run away at the end when he's crucified. And it's only after they witness the way that he died 
and they encounter the risen Christ that they started to get it. So do you remember the road to Emmaus in Luke 24? Here, Jesus meets two disciples on the road, and he interprets the scriptures for them. That's the whole Old Testament for them. Beginning with Moses, that's the writer of our text, Genesis 1, all the way to the prophets, the end of the Old Testament, he shows them all things concerning himself. Now, it's interesting to note that at that point, they still don't recognize Jesus. It's only in the context of the breaking of the bread that they finally see him, and then he disappears. And that's what we do here on Sunday. We try to open up the scriptures in the context of the communion of the body of Christ so that we can see Jesus. Now, wouldn't it have been great to have heard what Jesus told these guys on the road to Emmaus? Well, we kind of have access to that in the writings of the earliest Christians. So let's enter into communion with them and listen to how they saw Genesis 1 concerning the things of Christ. Let's see how they saw the connection between creation and salvation. Okay, so in Genesis 1, we see God speaking and things get done. This is a pattern. Let there be light, there's light. Let there be a firmament, it was so. Let the waters be gathered, it was so. God just has to speak, and it is so. His word is performative. This is called divine fiat. Let it be. And the opening prologue of the Gospel of John tells us why. It says in John 1, in the beginning was the word. The Greek word is logos here. And in the Chinese translation, it's what? Tao, right? In the beginning was the logos, the Tao. And the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. You see, the Logos is not merely sound waves coming out of God's mouth. The Logos is God's rational principle behind everything he does and makes. So in Genesis 1, what we're seeing is God encounters the potential of the void, and he brings good order out of the chaos because of his good, rational principle. We do the same thing psychologically, don't we? Every morning you wake up and you encounter the potential of the day. And depending on what rational principles we have, we can bring a certain order into the world and into our relationships. With the wrong kind of logos, we can bring a lot of hurt and pain into the world, and we can create a mini hell of sorts, can't we? This is what Thanos does. Thanos has a twisted Malthusian logos, and he brings a terrible order into existence. But what is the logos of God like that brings good order into the world? It's, it's described in Philippians 2. It tells us what this mind of Christ is like. The logos of God is self-sacrificial love for the other. This is the rational principle that brings good into the world that brings good order out of chaos. But you'll notice that God kind of breaks this pattern of let it be, and it was so, when he goes to make human beings. He does not use divine fiat to make human beings. Instead, he says, let us make human beings in our image. And then he proceeds to make them male and female. And I'm sorry, I have to put that aside for now because that's a whole other sermon. If you want to know more on that point, 
to get this book. But the point I want us to notice here is that God does not impose his logos on us by fiat. Notice also, because there's no it was so, means it's not yet complete. This is a project that God is embarking on, and it's a long-term project. So if we fast forward now to the Gospel of John, what we find is only in the Gospel of John do we see Pilate bring Jesus out and say, behold the anthropos, behold the human being. And then a few verses later in John 19, we hear Jesus say from the cross, it is finished. Behold the human being, it is finished. Now much has been written about what it is finished means. But for these early Christians, one of the things that was finished was God's long-term project to make a human being. But how can a human being be finished represented by a dead human being on a cross? Well, it depends how you define a living human being. This is a quote from St. Irenaeus. He's echoing Psalm 8, and he says here, the glory of God is a living human being. Now, when I first read that, I thought what he meant was, we are the glory of God. We are God's crowning achievement. We're the best thing God can make. And then I looked in the mirror. Really? This frail biped with no superpowers is the best thing that God can make. I don't think that's what Irenaeus is saying. He's not commenting on God's ability. What he's doing is defining what it means to be human. He's saying you're not a living human being until you are the glory of God. So what's this glory of God? The glory of God is the true revelation of God's character. And that's why we see Jesus in the Gospel of John constantly referring to his hour of glory as the cross. Because that's when, Jesus, that's when God's character will be fully on display. What Irenaeus is saying is that fully living human beings aren't defined by human DNA or having opposable thumbs. A fully living human being is a creature that is fully displaying God's character. And that's why Jesus can say it is finished from the cross. It also means, by the way, that Jesus was the first living human being, not Adam. And that's why we can read in Romans 5 verse 14 that Adam was only a type of the one to come. Adam was merely a starting sketch, shall we say. Now, once you get this perspective, this next quote will not sound so crazy. The first time I read this quote, it sounds absolutely ridiculous. What had happened was Ignatius had refused to take part in the cult of Rome. He basically didn't want to light a candle to Caesar. And because of that, he's being hauled off from Antioch, where he was the bishop, to Rome to be ripped apart by animals in, in, a, in a stadium in front of a, a large crowd for entertainment. And his friends are doing what friends should do. They're trying to get him out of it. They're bribing officials in Rome. And Ignatius is writing letters, which we have. And in those letters, he's telling them not to do it. So he says here, it's better for me to die in Christ than to be a king. And he goes on to say this crazy statement. He says, suffer me, my brethren. Hinder me not from living. Do not wish me to die. He's saying this to people trying to get him out of martyrdom. 
He says, suffer, to suffer me to receive the pure light. When I shall have arrived there, I shall become a human being. So in his mind, he's not a fully living human being yet. He's going to become one by grounding his existence in the self-sacrificial love of Christ. Now here is the genius of God. This is the genius of God in completing his project this way by using sacrificial death. Because Christ on the cross is able to show us what it is to be God by the way that he dies as a human being. Not simply dying, but in the way that he dies as a human being. And in so doing, he's able to simultaneously show us what it means to be a human being. Another part of the genius is shown in one of the oldest hymns we have on record called the Troparion, which our church fathers probably sang. The words go something like this. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death. For these early Christians, Christ defeats death by his death, not by the resurrection. The resurrection is merely proof that he does it. But he defeats death by the way that he dies as a human being. Here's the genius. If he had done it by throwing lightning bolts or being superhuman, how would that help us image God? Or if he had died as a human but gotten out of it because he was God, how would we be able to follow him? If Christ had done it by being a good Jew or by being poor or rich, he would have left a whole bunch of us out. The genius is he does it using the thing we all have in common. He uses our mortality. He uses our mortality so that we can use our mortality to come to life in him. You see, when we learn to die to ourselves and to live in Christ, we use death to defeat death's power over us and we gain back our freedom. No longer do we fear death as people who are clinging to biological life do. You could say that Jesus repurposed death. And this new use of death is not merely an act of desperation on our part or a resignation to our fate. It is actively taking up our cross every day to follow him, saying, not my will, but yours be done. Further, doing it this way teaches us something about life and death. So in the Gospel of John, there are two words for life. There's the Greek word bios, which means biological life. And then there's zoe, which means the life of God. And that's the word we see in John 3.16. So on the cross, we are witnessing simultaneously the death of bios, but zoe, the life of God, on the full display. And we're also taught about the two deaths mentioned in the book of Revelation, which we just finished studying. We learn that biological death may be our unavoidable fate in this life. But the real catastrophe, the real enemy that we face, is when a creature turns his or her back on the creator and experiences the loss of Zoe, the loss of real life. And finally, God uses death to teach us by experience. Experiential knowledge is the deepest form of knowledge. I could tell you all about sushi, but until you taste it, you don't really know, right? It's a deeper form of knowledge. So God wants to teach us by experience the value of life 
and the fact that we are completely dependent on God for it. You see, if you were born without sight, you would never know the value of sight. But if you're born with sight and then you lose it, you know what you lost, right? So God creates us and gives us a temporary breath of air so that we will know that life is not ours. But the amazing thing is we can use this temporary breath of air to gain the permanent breath of air, which is the Holy Spirit breathed into us. And how do we do that? We do that by saying, let it be unto me, by giving our own fiat. So if we could go to the next slide. This is uh, Dr. Strange reminding Tony Stark. He's looked into the future at 14 million possibilities, and there's only one way to defeat death. And he's reminding Tony Stark, this is it. This is the one time you have to act now. Irenaeus says something similar. He says there was no other way. He says if God had imposed his logos on us by saying, let it be, and it was so, then he would have only created automatons, robots. The only way to make a creature with free will in the image of God is for the creature itself to say, let it be, giving its own fiat. And that's exactly what God's divine logos did as a human being in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. But there's one last hurdle to overcome. This is uh, just after Tony Stark had given his life. He's dying here. He's in a catatonic state. And his wife, Pepper Potts, uh, finds him on the battlefield. And she tells him, Tony, it's okay. You can rest now. You see, the final hurdle we have to overcome is the danger of saying, wasn't I self-sacrificial today? Didn't I carry my cross well today? And the antidote to that is we need to follow Christ all the way all the way into the tomb, into his Sabbath rest. For these early Christians, Genesis 2, verse 3, was actually speaking about Christ. It's speaking about Christ resting in the tomb after he had finished his work. And Hebrews 4 tells us that unless we enter into this rest, we will not receive the benefits of the gospel and will, in fact, be disobedient. This stops us from becoming human doings, and helps us to remain human beings. For only God can make living humans, not us. We need merely to surrender, to let go of control, so that we can become dust, the clay that God can then fashion into a living human being. So just wrapping up now, seen through this lens then, Tony Stark's 22 movie arc can be seen as him being humanized. He started out exactly like Thanos. He was the merchant of death. He sold weapons and profited off death. He was a selfish playboy. And in the beginning of his movie, he's almost killed, and he finds himself in a tomb, in a cave. And there he meets Yinsen. And Yinsen is someone who shows him how to be human by giving up his life so that Tony can escape as Iron Man. And at the end of the movie, Tony is given a choice. Should he go back to his previous identity, or should he choose the identity of the man that emerged from the tomb that was also a womb? And of course we know he chooses the latter. He says, I am Iron Man. And then at the end of Endgame, 
we see him in the same situation. He's now in a tomb again, but this time he's with Nebula. Thanos is abused daughter who has never known kindness or love and has been punished over and over by Thanos as he exchanged her humanity for machinery. And now it's Tony's turn to humanize Nebula in the tomb that is also a womb. And this is what living humans get to do. We get to participate in God's humanizing of other humans. And of course, at the end of Endgame, we see Iron Man again with the same choice, which identity will he choose? And he chooses again to be Iron Man. So perhaps we can learn something from Tony Stark. As we learn to die to ourselves and to live in Christ, grounding our being in self-sacrificial love for the other. As we learn to pray, let it be unto me according to your will, giving up control so that we can become dust that God can shape into living human beings. Perhaps then we can say, I am becoming humus. I am human. Amen.